HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. big thank you for all of you to come here for an hour of um, talk about um, uh, Austria, what's happening right now in Austria. Uh, as you can hear, my, my accent is very French, um, but I must admit that uh, I've been following the work of, um, of this country for quite some time. And in a nutshell, I think this is, in terms of uh, what's happening in the wine world, one of the most dynamic and interesting country today. And I'm very glad you are here to kind of test with us. It's going to be very intense and very short, so I apologize for that in advance. But um, some of the importance of the wine you're going to taste today, so they probably need to sit down here. Um, so one of the most uh, forward-thinking country in Europe. You know, I, I often think about Austria being um, a kind of a schizophrenic in the best way. Uh, which is an old European soul. We are going to talk about, we are just mentioning it, some grapes that have been planted and worked uh, for uh, decades, centuries, from the previous Austro-Hungarian uh, Empire. So some a very heavy historic way of thinking about wine and um, thinking about the synergy between a place and a grape, which is what we're going to talk about on one side. But on the other side, due to some events that you are all aware of, a country that has been um, kind of pushed and obliged to raise quality and to think differently and to be very modernized at the same time and to be very forward thinking to preserve and save his wine industry. So I think it was the case in the 1980s when the scandal arrived, but I think it's very true today uh, because um, for, for me, when I see about how Austria is embracing some of the new style of wine, some of the new grapes, compared to some other country in Europe, and I'm very, you know, French, so I know what's happening in France, but embracing natural wine, orange wine, skin contact wine, or new grape varieties that peewees we are going to talk about, I think this is definitely one of the most um, dynamic and forward-thinking country today. So a preservation of the heritage and looking at what's 
going to happen tomorrow. It's a tiny, tiny country. It's like 45,000 hectares of vine, I think, total, uh, which is very, um, to give you an idea, 45,000 hectares of vine is two-thirds of the Loire Valley. Okay, to put back things in perspective. Huh? <laughs> it's not a lot, okay? And when you see the, um, the diversity of wine coming out of this country, is quite fascinating. What you also need to know is the price point per value of exported bottle from Austria is very high. Um, there is a decision made to really go for quality wine, terroir-driven wine and expressive wine with a very, very strong identity, which means no bulk wine sold, you know, and then bottled in any kind of market and all that. So that really means there is a mean and there is a will to, to go for quality. And that has been decided by the country. So... The, the, the goal today of the testing is I'm not going to, I'm going to talk, but I'm not going to be the only one talking. I've been very lucky to be uh, joined today in a panel by uh, three of um, the winemakers that we are going to present the wine from today. Uh, Martin, Christian, and Leo are going to be with us. Uh, we are supposed to, tell, to test 12 wines, but we decided to add some wine so because why not it's monday afternoon and end of row so let's add some wine um and we are going to do um a, um a kind of um a flight about that diversity based on style so the goal is today to talk a little bit amongst us about what's happening with each style category what they are doing with their wine what they are seeing the the present and the future, and what they are trying to, you know, um, achieve today with all the current problem. We know that at least Europe is facing the climate change issue and, and all these questions. Um, and from that, uh, maybe at the very end, take some of questions from you guys, because we are going to go pretty quick. It's a lot of wine, and I really want you when we are going to start to... Uh, to, to taste the wine and talk about the wine, I want you to really have these two, three minutes to be with the wine yourself, to take something out of them, and then we can exchange about it. Okay? All good with that? Okay. So, um, the, and we can start to pour. Let's action. So, um, the idea of uh, that talk was to uh, really um, talk about the diversity of Austria. I think, once again, for such a small territory to have today such a dynamism and such a legitimate expression of grapes and style is quite fantastic. Of course, I'm not, you have the booklet, and I must say Austria Marketing Board has been incredible in terms of resources. If you have any question, if you need any material, if you need any data or information, if you need any map or anything, there are really here to provide you with that. I think this is exceptional in terms of promotion outside, in terms of the depth and quality of the data and knowledge you are giving us. So I'm not going to go into details. You have the little booklet. You are going to learn about the different microclimate influence. You are going to talk about the different soil type and all. But just at the end, know that the different wine region, uh, all of them have been, there is a historical and geological reason for their delimitation. Now, all Austria is under DAC, the DAC, so which is focusing on certain type of grape variety that express the best the area. They are also working now to a new legislation going to single vineyard, premier cru, and grand cru, Erzlago and Grosslage. So I 
pardon my German accent that doesn't exist, um, but it's happening. There is now that the base quality has been assessed. Now we are going to be able to talk about differentiating with a single plot and the single vineyard. And so the pyramid of quality is happening right now, but the base first has been stated, which is, I think, very, very strong. And you have the liberty to do all the wine outside of the DAC, okay? There is quite a number of variety authorized today. There is 40 plus grape variety authorized in Austria, including some hybrid peewees that we're going to taste today. today. And this is the peewees and the hybrids that are very the top right now are some grape varieties that, as you know, uh, have been very discussed in other countries. In France, for example, these peewees are today authorized in Bordeaux and Champagne. You probably don't know that, but Champagne has a peewee authorized that is called Boltis. Uh, but it took a long time. Well, Austria has been thinking about that because they have been very concerned about organic, biodynamic, and sustainable farming also since a long time, even way before us in France. Okay, so the first fight we're going to have today, we're going to start to talk about sparkling wine because it's a country that legitimately can make really good sparkling wine. They have been putting out a new state legislation from 2016 on, so now you have a pyramid of quality with the sparkling wine, from more like inflowable to single vineyard, longer aging, a single plot, very specific type of grapes and all. So we're going to talk about that. But there is not only traditional method; there is also the pet nut. So that's the first flight we're going to take. We're going to then go to going to go to wines. The transition with. Uh, something a little special, and then the peewees, and we're going to finish with not only three, but five blau Frankish before I came with that. Okay? Cool. So, I talk a lot already. Uh, so, you have the text sheet in front of you. So, the idea was here to compare uh, two very different uh, wine projects for this sparkling wine. Uh, the first wine is uh, from a winery that is very, very young, and if my German is right, and you have, you have a microphone. <laughs> um, and what is uh, very uh, interesting for this uh, estate, and I was excited to start to show them, is they're only focusing on pet nuts. So I know very few winery in the world, and the one I knew from the world, the Capriade, just stopped. So the 2022 vintage is the last one, but to have someone just focusing on pet nuts and to think that the style of that first fermentation um, is worthy of terroir and aging is very rare. So this is the first one we're going to test on the left, uh, on my left, so it should be on your left too, versus a wine from a winery. So the first one is going to be um, just, it's from the French style, which is slightly more, for me, always a bit more protective, a slightly warmer side, a slightly... Uh, more, um, even if it's the north, you always have a little bit of that upfront sweetness versus the winery that is done in the south that um, has been putting out some more traditional method. And the one we picked today for you as a contrast is a work with a Solera, which is more and more in use also in Champagne. So how you're building up complexity, not only from the base wine of the vintage and the lees and the autolytic from that fermentation, but with really using some reserve wine that has aged with a purpose of oxidation on a solar system 
and then you do elastic fermentation. So we are kind of two extreme sparkling wine, and then I will ask you guys what you think about the future of sparkling wine this year. So maybe two, three minutes to taste, and two minutes, and then we can do about sparkling wine. So just in terms of grape varieties, you don't think you have them on your taste sheet. You don't. So for the pet nuts, it's all about Lena. And from the Arcand, it's going to be Zweigart and uh, some Pinot Blanc, but with more Zweigart on the second one. And the Sorera goes back four vintages with 18 months on the list. So, guys, spotting wine. I think um, these two uh, examples of sparkling from Austria are very good to show what's going on in Austria. I think in the past, especially SEC was dominated by the, by the big producers of Austria. And uh, now, um, like Harkam, they're starting now with their own uh, SEC uh, production and doing a really good job. And beside to it, it's, uh, was starting a couple of years ago. Um, yeah new chapter of, of sparking with uh, with Bentnard. and a lot of few uh, a lot of wineries started to 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 start working on it i think it was a couple of years very like uh, experimental to train to learn to understand um and Manchak is showing that um, i mean he's focusing 100 percent on on on, on Petnut. and um yeah i think it's 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 uh, basically, what what shows the the potential of um, Austrian sparklings, um, what we're able to produce. Yeah, because I think for sparkling wine, you term confinement what you're learning, but you still need to have some ripe grapes. I really believe for a long time we're just like sitting down, and it has to be a cool climate only because you need the acidity. But if you really want to build a sparkling wine for pleasure, but also for aging, we need something that is ripe. And if you want also to have something that is very important for sparkling wine, which are the autolytic petnaps of traditional method, you are going to rely on what you can extract from the grapes and the quality of the yeast and what the yeast and the bacteria can extract from these grapes. So if you get something that has no quality, whatever you want to say, and you do something with that, it's going to be finitely. And I think one of the things with Austria, what is interesting is the long growing cycle. I think the fact that it's, a, it's an area where you can still have this development of so many compounds, including phenolics, including aromatic compounds, including quality from the skin that you can press and extract, is something on top of the fact that you still preserve the acidity due to the uh, terroir, microclimate, and the grapes that really nourish the sparkling wine, including a pet nut. So pet nut, you know, it's an historical style. Uh, style. My oldest pet nut I tried from, was from 1964 in the Loire. It's been always existing. Refermentation would happen, but the fact to build it up, and this one I think is showing it, the quality of the lees that you are tasting, it is fermentary, you have the lees. You have the protein, you have the amino acid, you have the fatty acid, you have the mutation is here, but it builds up the wine so well in a different way that it's built up by the Solera here and the disgorgement. So there is, a, I really believe Petnat can show terroir. 
I really believe in that. When it's done with, as you said, moving up from the easy, bubbly, funny, and unfortunately, a lot of people put on the market for a little time where a little too simple, just for the money, for the sake and all that. It's a very beautiful, serious style that you can have a little bit more grape expression and terroir expression. And I think what we're testing here is that kind of level of maturity with people embracing how much the techniques can do that. Any thought on sparkling wine right now? Because you are. Hi, hello. So, um, yeah, it's the we a future thing with doing in sparkling. So I tried also my first step in Petmarts 2015. And yeah, it's, I think, with the cold climate idea in the region of Austria, we have to try it. So, so former times, uh, we have only had the real big producers with they do the supermarket stuff. So quite easy, and now we are still, a lot of producers are still trying champagne uh, and carvers and so on with the higher quality from smaller producers. And so it's, I think now it's a good time also to try it in that way uh, about ripeness. Uh, so I try also my stuff to do it uh, on skin fermented head nuts. That's quite difficult because you get a lot of tannins in, so it's sometimes struggling the first uh, half year with the, with the taste because it's quite strong, but with the least uh, maturation, also in the bottle, you have the chance to bring them back in down. So I see yeah, it's quite very interesting. Yeah. I think it's uh, the first time for the pet night, it's, you just need to imagine, like you always have like once a year the chance to, to try, to produce, to learn. And uh, we also started with um, Petra a couple of, of, of years ago. And it's like, um, I mean, until the moment we had like 10 times the, the, the chance to produce it, to understand it, um, how it works. And uh, for ourselves, we found our way that we use uh, one liter hitched uh, base wine and we, we make a second fermentation with fermenting juice. And that's the way for us personally how, how it tends up. I don't know if it's called the. the Pet milk or a sparkling or whatever, but that's just the way how we do it personally. Yeah, I, I, think, I think the the, the problem with sparkling wine is we're very attached to the method. Even when you get into them, us as one talking about as a sommelier, but uh, I'm, my partner and I are working a little bit of pet nut recent in New York, so I'm very aware of the pet nut, the method stuff. There is a couple of things there. I think we need first and foremost to learn that. Sparkling wine are probably the hardest wine to taste. They are extremely complicated, uh, the, the bubbles and all that, in terms of the sheer effect on us tasting the wine is harder. I'm not sure if you know, but when you have also a CO2 in, in, a, in a wine, and you probably know it by experience, you get um, the CO2 accelerates the assimilation of alcohol, so you get drunk faster by drinking sparkling wine. I'm not sure if you knew that. Um, it's also a lot of parameters that were very, very, uh, very uh, not very well um, taught or educated to taste. And one of them is retasting really uh, the quality of acid, but all this umami, all this amino acid. So for me, sparkling wine are the hardest wine to taste. Be them traditional method, tank method, or pet nuts. 
But behind, this is a method that at the end allows us, I think, to get even more mineralization because that fermentation process and that double fermentation process in the case of, of traditional method is really going to metabolize all the organic compounds, acid, sugar, and all that, to translate that into something else. And for this something else, we are not taught to distinguish them very, very well. What's happening right now is a maturing country like Austria in terms of where they are going for the small producer. I'm not talking about the supermarket wine, but the small producer is a great expression of how should we understand better sparkling wine. And I just encourage all of you to really spend some time trying to test better sparkling wine, to try to understand what differentiates a really legit terroir-driven, low-yield, great extraction, Diamond Lees with disgorgement with almost no dosage versus high yield, overdone, overcrop, yeasted, lees to kind of beef the stuff up, and then dosage at the end to try to give a little bit more aromatics to the wine. So, all of you, I think you should spend more time right now to understand better sparkling wine, to read discern quality, and understand when you have a legitimate death breath, power, and quality, like layers versus what is just kind of makeup stuff into the stocking. Okay? And I think we have two very good examples today of legitimate sparkling wine. Um, sorry for this a little random. I'm very upset about a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we continue. Let's talk about uh, so white. So the idea was to go white behind kind of the traditional grapes and what's happening today and uh, how to keep the the open-mindedness of uh, the the versatility of terroir and which grape have been used for quite some times and how in fact some uh, probably some poor farming and some economical reason uh, and we can for the wine now. Yes, some some economical reason, some market reason, led to some of these grapes to be undervalued and under-respected while they are still very legitimate. So this is what we're gonna do right now, and the wine are coming. So for this flight, um, the idea was to go behind uh, the, two, uh, the two flagship grapes of the country, Wono uh, and Riesling, um, because we're, once again, we're just talking a couple of minutes ago, but there is a diversity of white grape variety in Austria that is extremely compiling with some very great examples that I think deserve your attention because it's for, for most of them that what I call semi-aromatic grape variety. So I have, the way I classify the white grapes are in three categories. I have the non-aromatic, the semi-aromatic, and the aromatic. Quite straightforward. The aromatic will be your Muscat, your Gewurztraminer, and all this one, even your Sauvignon Blanc. These aromatics are so strong that you, wherever almost you are in the world and the techniques you are using and all, you will still pick up some of the variable compounds, okay? So when you taste the wine, you really need to strive and to try to understand the terroir and the winemaking style. 
you have the non-aromatic, Chardonnay, Aligoté, and all that. In that case, what usually drives the style of the wine is the style of the winemaker, what he wants to achieve, and the terroir. Okay, if you're a cold climate or warm climate. So it's very sometimes hard to know where you are from because the style is often taking over. I think Chardonnay today is kind of a great example. It's very hard to get into this direction. And then you have the semi-aromatic. And the semi-aromatic are the ones that have a little bit of aromas and some terroir-driven, and depending on where you are at the skill of the winemaker, are going to give you different type of expression. Um, the example I use often is my favorite grape that unfortunately is not yet grown in Austria, but who knows? It's uh, a joke. Uh, Chenin, but, or Riesling. Riesling is a great example. Riesling, depending on the terroir, the skill of the winemaker, and the grapes, you can have an extremely beautiful breath on expression. And for me, the semi-aromatic are fantastic because they are mind-blowing. So the idea today is to show kind of these grapes that are a little bit more semi-aromatic and all that, but are able to show terroir and a little bit less varietal content, and some of them that are non-aromatic. But in that case, you have to have a great terroir and fantastic one mesker skill to make really a beautiful wine. Think about, once again, Chardonnay. Chardonnay can be terribly boring or can be absolutely exceptional because a person knows how to do that very well. So it's what we are going to do right now with the next one. You want to talk about your wine? <laughs> oh, your wine of uh, Christine? You take that from here? Good afternoon, and uh, my name is Christine, and I have to say thank you to the audience. It's always a pleasure to be sold out. So <laughs> every, every place is, is full, and that is a thank, uh, thank you from us to your interest in Austrian wine. Um, I'm sitting here on behalf of my son. Uh, he is the founder of Kolfok, and Stefan was here last year, and he was uh, not able to come this year, so he was sending me as a kind of ambassador, and as I'm his mom, I'm, as am I'm ambassadoring it since I gave birth. So, <laughs> um, the idea of terroir-driven wine is to express the attitude that every grape variety has and to not focus on the skills of the winemaker and, 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 the, and the, on the techniques because we are speaking of low intervention wines, but to maybe find a technique or a method of uh, fermentation to express both the grape and the soil. And I think with the first wine, this is the aim of the wine. It's, co it's called Intra the Wild. Um, and it's a white wine made of uh, two grape varieties, which are typical Austrian. It's Grüner, Grüner Wettliner, and Welsh Riesling. So everybody knows Grüner. And Welsh Riesling is not uh, Riesling, but it's the Burgenland uh, grape variety that is often used for sweet wine with Botrytis. Uh, because of its shape, it is a bunch of uh, looking like a fist and have very small berries. So uh, intracellular fermentation is perfect for this shape of grapes because the fermentation takes place within the berry and that is not often done with white wine. 
Grüner Veltliner, this is a grape with a little bit larger berries and a little bit thicker skin. So it has to take weeks to explode. Uh, the yeast in the flesh of the berry is fermenting very slow. And it is taking all the aromas and a, a slight tannin structure out of the grape and the skin. And after the fermentation has the maximum pressure on the skin, it, it's exploding like popcorn. And that is a very dramatic moment in the barrel because this is an open cask and it is going like, you know how it looks like when you do popcorn at home. So it's the same effect and it's really beautiful. And Stefan was doing a video on, on, on how, to, how to do this. Uh, which I was show, showing uh, before. Um, what you need is perfect grapes. And what you need is a very soft and no crushing, distemming. Uh, so you have no juice in the barrel and the yeast is forced to start the fermentation within the berry. That is the aim. What is the soil that is schist and slate? And you can feel it. You can smell it. Also, the smell of the fermentation is still here. But you can uh, taste the soil on your palate. And you can feel the soil in your nose. And that is what the aim of the winemaker is. Just to show what's the work in the vineyard and what's our highest uh, quality because this is the soil. Do you mind uh, telling us where you are located exactly? Um, we are in Burgenland and uh, the Middle Burgenland is, um, used, uh, is, is usually known as the Blaufränkisch land. So this is the region in Austria where the um, red wine Blaufränkisch is, is um, well known. And Kolfok is the name for an unconventional thinker or a rebel, or as the mother says, the son who doesn't believe what the mother, what the mother says. But um, he was uh, he's taking over the old vineyards of our grandmother. She was the first female winemaker in the family, and she was planting white wines on the hills of Ödenburger Gebirge, after World War II, when there was shadow from the forest and she was sure Blaufränkisch would not get ripe there. She was right then. This would be the perfect Blaufränkisch plot now, but it's uh, planted with Bruno Veltliner and Weltschriesling. So uh, Stefan took over this in 2015 and is doing his Kolfog winery since then. Thanks. So for you to understand well, this one is made with carbonic maceration for white which is something that you don't really hear about. It's something we hear for the red because it's, some, it's a technique that allows to have extraction of fruit and different type of amylic aromatics and gentle tannin. You don't do that a lot with white. Something you hear often about carbonic is like it's not terroir driven. Okay, it's like too aromatic and the techniques is hiding and all that. Okay, the technique is very complex. I, encourage you to go on Wikipedia and to read about the history of the techniques. Uh, but what I think is very interesting is that decision to use that instead of bare skin fermentation, to try to extract the, the terroir. This, this wine is made to, to really express 
the terroir of the of the area. So you don't extract too much because you are intracellular. You don't put as much amylic acid because it's white grape versus red grapes. You don't have enough. The tannin structure is a little bit different. It's 62 days in this carbonic state. And what do you get exact of that? So what do you extract from that technique that can embody the terroir from that? And I think that's a very fascinating way. The thing I want you also to focus on is freshness is not only about acidity. Freshness comes from other parameters for wine. Freshness is your relationship and your body relationship to the wine. It's how your body is going to feel the wine, how your body is going to salivate, how your body is going to feel about how easy the wine is to drink. It's not only about acidity. So the quality of the tannin, the phenolics, and other compounds, including mineral compound and dry extract, are key about freshness of the wine. And I think that's something I find very interesting in this wine. So bravo for that. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's really awesome. I, like, I, I must say, the, the cleanness, what you are getting there, the, the aromatics, the length, it's a little bit primary, it's very young, it's 22. This is the wine I want to see aging. I want to see what the wine is going to give me in the future. But my, my satisfaction comes from different parameters that you need to put in your brain that are just not only driven by acidity. Acidity is one of the many factors. But the quality farming and with the ripeness, it comes from different factors. The quality of the terroir, the farming, what you extract, and how you get it back in the bowl. Uh, we are going to go to the one number two. Uh, uh, the winemaker is not here, Johannes Linger. So I wanted to take this wine, and I picked it because I was quite fascinated by the profile. So please take, I, let's go a little bit faster. It's my fault. 20 seconds, you test the wine, and we're going to talk a little bit about it. So what I found it very interesting in this wine when picking it, so it's mostly Welsh Riesling, and we're going to talk about the grape a little bit later, which is an undervalued grape variety to my appreciation. So it's a grape I don't know very well, but it's, I think it's a way more interesting grape than we think it is. And it's a Chardonnay. But the Chardonnay here, you probably, I'm pretty tasted it, has been seeing some flour. You taste it? A little bit of flour for the Chardonnay. So it's, um, the majority is based with the Welsh Riesling, but then you have that eight months on the floor that I really like. So I spent quite some time uh, in Jerez recently, and I was talking with a bunch of the guys about the floor use. And I found something very interesting in what they were saying. In cool climate area, you are using the oak to give more breath and more opulence to your wine. The oak use and the leaves use are going to be used to kind of beef up your wine. In the south, when you have alcohol, when you already have that power and density and alcohol, you are going to use the floor, and the floor is yeast, to kind of slim your wine. Because in fact, the floor to survive has to eat alcohol and has to eat, to eat certain type of acid. So when you, it's why you are fortifying the wine of Jerez. Or now you don't have two, but you have to go at 15% and a half or 15 plus to have the floor develop because the floor is eating alcohol. And I really like this idea of the floor being used not only for the aromatic compound, which is one thing, but it's because it's going to slim down your wine when you have a lot of glycerol and a lot of alcohol. You understand? So the oak is going to build up and the floor is going to 
final. Sometimes the oak is also filling out in the finish, okay? But uh, so this wine has a floor. So we are in, in, in vine virtual, and what I like with this wine is this combination of breath from ripe vitreousling, really kind of a little bit more opulent, and how the Chardonnay with the floor is taking the second half a tiny bit of ascetic because it's here, and then the very salivating saline expression. So have you been working with floor in your wine? I mean, we, we do presently one wine uh, with floor. It's called Tres Cuartos because Adriana is from, uh, from Spain and um, we tried it a couple of years ago, which, which was very emotional because uh, I think when we would have been married, we would have been getting divorced with this wine. But <laughs> I told Adriana, it's like, I don't think it's a good idea. I think you will fuck up the cellar. I think you will fuck up the wine. She didn't. I excused myself and she was right. So, And... Um, Welschriesling also, I mean, we do it with Welschriesling because you have high acidity level. Uh, and I think you need a variety with high acidity to compete with, uh, with floor. And in our case, floor is, I don't, I think you don't get it in a sterile cellar. So we, we age it in our old cellar. And um, in the first year, that's not happening a lot because you have still the CO2 of the fermentation and from the malolactic fermentation. But then the second year is very important because then you build up uh, floor yeast. And um, yeah, it's quite fascinating. And um, yeah, Adriana was right. <laughs> so she, she doesn't listen, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think for this one, what's interesting is that the Welsh thing has been uh, vinified on, uh, on skin, on amphora. The, uh, the Chardonnay has been vinified in barrel with the floor and the combination of the tannic structure and the floor is recreating a balance. And I think that's a great exploration, again, for freshness when you're testing the wine, because suddenly you, your parameter is shifting and you are discovering a new way of appreciating layers and nuances for this kind of wine. So, yeah. Good? Sorry, we need to move on because we have still like 25 wine to taste. <laughs> well, the next one is yours, huh? First of all, I think we have to work on the termination of Vineland. Uh, but thanks a lot to the Austrian Wine Marketing Board. But it's uh, it sounds like Disneyland or Wonderland or whatever. Uh, Kolfok and, uh, and and our winery we are located in Burgenland. But in the terms of how we produce the wines, it's not fitting uh, in the in the regulations. So we are out of the box. But the wineries are located in Burgenland. Um, and in our case, we produce uh, um, Weißburgunder. And I think Weißburgunder is a very honest variety. Um, in the area where we grow the wines, it's uh, very diverse. So we work with Grüner, we work with Welsh Riesling, we work with Weißburgunder and Neuburger. And in this case, the Weißburgunder is grown on calcareous soil. It's very pure. I think Weißburgunder is not a variety showing a lot of aromas. But like I told, it's very honest. So you can't hide behind this variety. It gives you the perfect impression of soil. Uh, when you taste it, uh, you will have this salty um, fascination of, 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 of the area of calcareous soil. And um, I mean, we do keep it very simple. So the, the wines, uh, the grapes come into the winery, we press them, uh, ferment in uh, 1,000 liter aged uh, barrels. Um, 
keep it there for one year without any movement because we think time is uh, is fixing a lot of things and it's also clarifying the wine without filtration so the wine is unfiltered uh, but still clear because we don't want to lose the um, sensation of the of the original <clears throat> and I think it's much more harder to to bottle an unfiltered wine clear than to bottle an unfiltered wine turbid so and we spoke before, I think um, it's a good example of uh, giving an impression of origin, of the vintage characteristic, and probably also of the skills of, uh, of the winemaker. So I hope that you enjoy it. Yes, yeah, so Vice Burgunder is probably a grape that uh, never, and we can, we can after that for the next fight, but um, always kind of was a second thought. Okay, Pinot Blanc, Vice Burgunder, not as good as Chardonnay, blah, blah, blah. I've been working with more and more Weisbergender. I think, as you said, it's an unforgiven grape. If it's too high in yield, if it's not properly farmed, if the winemaking is too intense, you're going to miss it. But when it's spot on, it's a very ethereal, kind of transparent grapes, and I really, really like it. And I think it's extremely... Um, great vessel of the non-aromatic I was talking about, but transparent to the terroir. When I taste this wine, and when I see the just gentle delicacy of the fruit, coming up with a little bit more weight, coming from definitely a little bit of lease probably, and the work to, to really bring that back from in a wine. And I see the finish, and I taste the finish without that salinity you were mentioning, with everything is just with touch. It's just not in your face at all. It's just like gentle and just one ear, one ear, one ear. I'm extremely happy because this wine, in fact, in the world are extremely rare. When you really think about ethereal white wines that are extremely satisfying, layered with, once again, the fruit from the grapes, and, but a little bit more of the vegetables, the floral and the spice, there is not that many white wines today that can do that. Chardonnay, I've, it's not I gave it up, but it's just too much. And I'm looking for this transparency, which is almost like water-like, but with very little. And I think Weissburgunder is one of the grapes. I think Melon Bourgogne is another grape that can do that. And when they are done to their best, they are outstanding. Outstanding. So I think that's a really beautiful wine. And also, look, is that 2020? This wine, you, five years, 10 years? I have no doubt, no doubt, is going to last and is going to even improve in bottle. Like even keep like losing a little bit of that baby fat and that sweetness that you have. Yeah, but I mean, we, we, I think we send our wines on a journey when we bottle them. So I think they're not ready when we bottle them. But on a certain point, you have to put it in the bottle, and then the journey starts. So it's it's a journey from becoming a grape, um, getting to wine then being bottled, and then I think, like I told, it's, there, there's the potential to, to keep it for another five to ten years without any, any doubt. doubt huh? yeah. So that's, I think that's a beautiful, beautiful white, honestly. Okay, you take the microphone, that's for you. <laughs> so that's my fault. So, so, so we had a little bit of a confusion for the next cuvee, so blame is on me. So it's not the right grapes, but you is going to correct everything. You go. So, yes, <laughs> hello again. So uh, now we have not the BB in the glass. So the first glass uh, was served now. So uh, 
It's just a real old varieties uh, of my region. So it's the Müller-Durgau. And so we have a replanting when I start my winery uh, in 2007 with the Frührote Wilsina. So it's a red-skinned berry. It's familiar with uh, Malvisia. So, but it don't bring color out of the skins, of also of the skin contact. And so in the next wine, we have also the basement. We fill them up with Grunewittliner. Um, and it's, yeah, we have around three weeks uh, skin contact fermentation. Uh, but I find my own way to do it. So don't, don't make the pressure for orange wine style too hard. So I like to bring more fruitiness, juiciness in, and also the, the nice uh, thing of cool climate, ripen up tannins of the, of the skins. Can you talk a bit about your place, where you're located, so, and where? Yeah, why, so why, why, why is this? <laughs> okay, is okay. This? So my place is situated close to the Czech border, so in the north of Vienna. So it's real cool climate. So it's a bit different to the south of Burgenland. So the air direction is just close, so 150 kilometers. But we are in the north, so it's um, in the border zone where you can grow wine. It's close. Uh, when I'm still in the wine hill, you saw the. The, the hillside where it's possible and where it's not possible <laughs> in direct way. So I, I run a small winery biodynamic and yes, so we just focused in main way in whites. And so at the moment uh, we, we have around 50% in orange style. So that's the, the thing I, I love to do because it's all the maturation. It's like the same with the white Burgundy. You have the potential that the wines can really grow up in the bottle, also with lower alcohols. And with Müller, and with Müller Turgo. And Müller Turgo. Which is not the grape that we think for quality wine. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's always the thing. I, I, for me, it's always like, uh, yeah, you talk it, it's Chardonnay or so it's, you have some classification of varieties, you say it, that are great, great grapes for great wines, and you have a lot of grapes that do not have the real potential, but I think the potential is in the soil, in the microclimate, and in the, in the winery who like to work with them. And if you put a lot of energy in it, you can also do it with a smaller um, variety, also make great wines. So. Yeah, and you have to think that uh, historically white were uh, skin fermented for multiple reasons. Okay, um, and the kind of modern winemaking that we know with direct press and potential for white is very, very recent. It dated from the time that stainless steel arrived and air, like AC arrived and the different type of press. And then the, 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 the style changed dramatically. And some grapes did better with that for multiple reasons. Okay, the fact that now we are also bringing back the idea of tanning structure in the white wine is a big argument to bring back some grape variety was that were undermined for that. You have also to understand that until probably one generation, what matters was to be able to make a living out of the grapes and out of your farming. So we are talking about quantity, quality, a certain level of ripeness, to be able just to make enough wine to survive financially. So certain grapes were developed with that purpose in mind. Were they good or bad? They were developed for that. Were they then categorized because they were developed for that, which is the case of Mulher Turgo, 
beet, but when you talk again about older vine, farm the proper way with the right amount of yield, and then just vinified with a new, new or old techniques, suddenly you need to shed a new light of these grape varieties that were dismissed, especially because at the end they kind of adapt to the terroir. And I think this is what we're testing today. So really rethink some of the grapes that we're like, okay, Mlorturgo, Weisbergender, and Welschisling are just not interesting grape varieties, they are volume wine. And, no, if they are farmed the proper way with the right yield and adapted to the site, you know what? They're probably going to make great wine. And I think that's kind of the take today of that. What is MF for? MF. So, MF. <laughs> so the MF is classic for Müller Dogger and yeah. Frührot. So it's just yeah, meaning yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the letters are just meaning the varieties which are inside. So <laughs> don't <Okay>. be scared. <laughs> we, have, uh, we have eight minutes. Uh, can you give us 15 minutes, guys, to finish that? Okay. Uh, just wanted to ask. <laughs> I really like this wine. I, I, I really believe in skin contact. Uh, people are talking about skin contact is like erasing the terroir and the site. I believe in the opposite. Why should maceration bring terroir in the red and not bring the terroir in the white? Okay? Like, let us be coherent. I really believe in that. It's just, once again, me first. We don't know how to taste them properly. We haven't learned about it. We haven't learned about the, the different compounds and how to recognize them and talk about them. So one of the big work for all of you guys, like the same sparkling wine, is please taste more skin contact, understand the terroir, and see how that can be a, a revelation of terroir. Because I really believe it does. Because it does for the red. If it does for the red, it must do it for the white. So the two next wines, we should taste them side by side. So the peewees, the peewees, uh, big debate, hybrid, big debates, and all that. Uh, I'm going to start in one second. You guys, you are all hybrids. You know that, that you are like a major population of bacteria in, uh, like in your skin, in every all of your cells, without bacteria that don't belong to the same species of ours, you wouldn't be able to breathe. It's in your heart. It's everywhere. In the plant, photosynthesis is possible because you have cyanobacteria inside the cells of the plants that have been absorbed millions of years ago, allowing for the extraordinary phenomenon of chlorophyll and photosynthesis to happen. So hybrids have been the natural evolution of the living species on this planet. Okay? The question is, do we have to force hybrids very quickly in laboratory with science, the way we have been doing, or do we need to accept in a different way? But they are here, and they have been here all the time. We are hybrids. So it's, it's part of the solution, without a doubt. So we need to understand them. It's a very big category. The peewees have been the reason one developed since the 1970s in laboratories when we started to get better knowledge and science to be able to pick up genes and to insert them into another DNA. But hybrids have been here in the US since three centuries with a natural cross-pollinization because Vitis vinifera and Vitis in general is a plant that allows a lot of hybrids to happen. The Labrusca and the vinifera, as you put them together, you can have an hybrid very easily. So Vitis per se lacks and have no problem to make hybrids, okay? So let's be clear with that. So now that we know a little bit of that background, it's like, 
these kind of plants and, and new, new grapes, sometimes forced, forceful and developed in laboratory, others developed in the vineyards, are here. And they are here to stay. Do we need to embrace them, to comprehend them? To, yeah, we need to have an appreciation of them. A lot of the new hybrids have less than 20, 30 years old of planting. They are very young vines. There is only one clone. We are just starting to discover their potential. So we also need to be very kind with them. The one I'm working with in New York State, Kyotoba, Delaware, and Concord, the one I'm, I'm working with a 100 years old vine. It's not the same thing, okay? But please put that in your mind. So here we have two very different types of hybrids. We have the Peewee Ember and the Cara. We want, I wanted to have a very aromatic one because some of the hybrids developed and the peewees tends to have a lot of musca in their DNA. So very aromatic, opulent, phenolic, terpenic, and others are way more subdued and looking to be able to transcend the soil and, and, and the winemaking in the wine and not the grapes. So please test this wine quickly and then we'll test the blood pressure. For the first one, um, so the MC that you have on your list is Muscaris. And the Muscaris, and I'm sorry, I need to take some of my notes because sometimes the crossing are a bit complicated, is a, it's a cross of Solaris and Muscateller. So the Musca should be quite upfront. So the Renner is a winery that has been planting more and more hybrids over the years to try to decrease the spray. So some of the hybrids have been created to fight against the cold, and no more of the hybrids that we are seeing in the market have been created to really decrease the number of spray and treatment, especially between two of the most important diseases of the vine, which are the downy and the powdery mildew. So this is really some of the new spaces that have been developed, and some of them tend to have a lot of musca. In their, in their background, which is one of the oldest grapes we can find. So I think here you can feel kind of heavy muscat on that point. The other grape is called Souvenir Gris. So it's why you have SG. And Souvenir is a, is a cross of between Seval and Zaringer. And Seval is a kind of one of the most famous hybrid you find here in America, you find it in Canada. I really like Seval. It's very neutral and gentle and very chihuahua expressive. Uh, which is a bit more like what I'm looking forward now into my hybrids in terms of what I'm looking for my restaurant. Souvenir gris is kind of a pinot gris. So it's very proteic and proteiform in terms of its expression. So here's a bit fuller and richer. I would like to really, in fact, to focus on the Carla because I think this is one of the, the Prado Rosenberg winery has been one of the most pioneering and forward-thinking winery into hybrids. I've been working with them since more than 20 years. And I picked the Cara because this is their non-aromatic burgundy style expression of hybrids. And then my question is, and then we can go on to the fact of Blau Frankies, is how many of you, blind, would have picked up this wine as made from hybrids? How many of you would have thought about this wine being this kind of slightly lusher Chardonnay, Pinot Blanc expression, a little bit more gentle aromatics, driven by a, maybe a sense of place because it's made on this kind of slightly more limestone-based soil wine. I would have. It would have been very complicated for me. Okay, so they are part of the conversation. Pay attention to them. It's a very complex world. Hybrid is not one grape. It's different grapes. There are different creation type and how they've been created. Some of them with different reasons. But 
they need to belong to the conversation because Peronospora and Don Emilio, unfortunately, there is no money today to find an alternative treatment to this disease. It's only chemicals, it's sulfur and copper. Unfortunately, there is probably another alternative that would serve, which is vinifera. But right now, vinifera is a grape dependent on this treatment. Unfortunately, these grapes may lead to more dynamic to find other ways to deal with this disease. And they are part of that conversation. Okay? So just put them back. I think the car right now, it's like a pretty mind-blowing quality wine. So we are going to have three blow Frankish that is written on this paper, and then we have two extras. Three? You put one? You didn't? Oh, my God. Because you don't like <laughs> So if you're okay, we are taking like five, seven minutes more of your time. Okay. And I think this cara is quite impressive. Huh? Thinking, yeah? Oh, la, la. Okay, blow Frankish to finish. Alors. Right now, Blau Frankish is one of my favorite red grape varieties. It's been for a little time. In my restaurant, I have a lot of French people, for obvious reasons. A lot of winemakers, a lot of wine professionals. And one of the wines I love, 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 love to pour them. <laughs> we like Pinot Noir from Burgundy. Okay, you know what? Let's pour some Blau Frankish from Austria. <laughs> so I wouldn't have said that 10 years ago. My first time I went to Austria was in 2010 or 11. Uh, and I must say I was a little bit underwhelmed by the red, not because of the quality of the grape, but because it was a time that I think it was trying too hard. A lot of the wine were very extracted and over-oaked, and you felt very a uh, little bit frustrated because you could feel how good one could have been, but the oak and the extraction were making everything very hard and tannic and all. Especially if with two of my favorite grapes, which is St. Laurent and Blau Frankish. Uh, and I must say that over the years, and very gratefully, what we have been seeing is an extraordinary evolution of the winemaking. And backing up very quickly from this extracted, overripe, and just too, too make up wine to something way more terroir-driven. St. Laurent, for sure, which I think is the grape that you should reconsider. It's not an easy grape, as far as I understood. Making really more lifted and pretty wine, but Blau Frankish, without a doubt, is a superb, superb, red grape variety, and I hope you are going to, so we, we are going to show you five wines, because I, f I picked three wines from wineries that are not here, and then you guys that are focusing on Blau Frankish are going to be able to talk about that, but I really think today Blau Frankish belongs to this pantheon of major red grape variety that you need to, uh, to really pay attention to, and most of them are grown in Austria, a little bit around in Central Europe, a little bit in New York, yeah? there is a tiny bit of Blau Frankish here. Strong identity, delicacy, layers of so many aromatic compounds, and quality of tannin, which I think is super. So, what can you say about Blau Frankish? You have one minute and one minute. <laughs>
Yeah, I mean, in, in our case, in terms of the whites, the area where we grow the wines, it's more diverse. Uh, but in terms of the reds, it's, uh, it's basically Blaufränkisch. It's a variety um, which still uh, is uniting the old Austrian-Hungarian uh, empire. I mean, Burgenland as a, as a wine region is since 100 years uh, part of Austria because we got pushed back and forward after the World, world War I and, uh, and the Second World War. And um, yeah, the, the, the grape is having the ability to unite the old uh, empire. And um, for me, it's a variety um, having a lot of different layers. And what I really like on the variety, that's a very delicate uh, acidity, which helps you also to, um, to produce wines on a very, I don't know, like dancing in, in, in the mouth, um, but still having the ability to age for a couple of years. So I, I would say like two years in the barrel and then three years after the bottling, it really starts to make uh, fun and you get uh, serious Blaufränkisch. Blaufränkisch is our soul. I come from a region that's called the Blaufränkisch land, which is the Mittelburgenland in, in Austria. And for us, Blaufränkisch belongs to the five great grape varieties in red because it offers everything a great red wine needs. You have tannins with a, with a good structure. You have acidity and Blaufränkisch acidity is one of the most elegant and beautiful acidities you can have in red wine. And you have a fruit that is always cheering. It is always... Um, bringing your palate to, to shine. And one of the best uh, qualities of Blaufränkisch is it's a food pairing grape variety. So the wines always put your plates on a kind of podest and they are not falling over it and you are only having heavy wine on the palate and not the, on that, the food. And this was so... 10, 15 years ago when you visited Austria the first time, or 20 years ago, but luckily not only the young, but also the settled winemakers are experimenting with uh, Fringish on different soils, and it is in all literature about Burgenland that Fringish is all, only best at clay, but we decided that Fringish can do very, very good at limestone, at schist and his perfect uh, soil for us is red slate because this is minerality and fruit and elegance. And that is the, the greatest aim of producing a red wine, to do an elegant red wine, because this is the bottle you can share and you can drink and you can finish and you can order the second bottle. So we are going to taste these three wines and then we have two extra just after that, uh, if we're okay. So what I wanted to show here is how Blaufränkisch, I think, is, a, is really linked by the, by the terroir and the soil. So the first one that you had, Astral, from Andreas. What I wanted here is like, everything is done in Amphora. So there is a kind of, uh, amphora is interesting for, like, amphora is a complicated subject, you all know that, and different type of clay, the shape and all that. But here, we have something from the north of the New Zealand, but a little bit more lifted. I think it's very fruit forward, it's very discreet, it's very, like, lifted, 
lifted tannic structures. There is almost nothing really like staying, just a little bit of salivation in the back, but a very bright, very pure, very, you want kind of drinks, this kind of light compiling fruit forward, but saline red wine with a blau Frankish. Then with the, the idea with the, with the Schnebel is we go down to the south, we go to Styria and the south of Styria, and this is a way more serious, denser, slate-based with a little bit of limestone, broader tannin, more oak, just really like a more opulent kind of expression of the grapes. It's taking you more in the mouth, the fruit is riper, the extraction is a bit more assumed, and you are really going into a whole different type of profile of Blau Frankish. And then with the last one, with Johannes, you go back to Carnantum and you go back to the north, but you go back to an area that dedicated itself to red wine for quite some time and really kind of asserted a little bit more an identity for red wine. And here you are going back to kind of a, a balance between the two. You have at the same time the ripeness, a bit more extraction, a little bit more assessment, less playful, a little bit more serious wine, but without the kind of more sturdy tannic structure that you have in the south with a mix of limestone and a little bit of the very specific kind of schist, which I find very interesting. So it's more limestone-based, so different type of pH, very tall schist, Well, in the south we're really into the schist with the core, which I think you could really feel in the tannic structure. So three wines, 200 miles apart, not even, and three very different profiles of the grapes. Now, if you agree, we can pour two last wines for these guys because they are Blau Frankish specialists, but I had to pick wines that were not Blau Frankish from them. And that's going to be the end of the tasting. So let's do that quickly. So you can taste five expressions of that grapes. And once again, I think the Blau Frankish is an amazing red grape variety right now. The price for value is fantastic. What's happening with these grapes is really, really exciting. I'm selling it with people that like Burgundies, that like Northern Rhone, they are really into it. And I'm just only encouraging you to try to deep dive a tiny bit because if you're on limestone or if you're on clay or if you're on schist, which happens in the South, you won't have the same quality of fruit and the quality of tannin. On top of, of course, the quality of the work of the extraction. But you can really play with that. And the guests, for my guests, they are really like, wow, it's really good, and I never try something like that. So bravo for that, guys, on that. We are going to test this tool as fine. Do you have any question right now for Leo or Christine or Martin? Can we just go over the last the three blood branches? The last one, it was uh, limestone schist, mm -hmm. and then the core. Yeah. yeah, so the, the core is primary rock and schist. Huh? Uh, the one from the Carpen Schiffer, I was definitely trying to, to see if it was a technical or geological world, but it's not. So it's mostly limestone with a little bit of schist. And then you have the wine from uh, Andreas, which is in gold, which is more sedimentary sun from the lake. But let's talk about one second about that, if I may. Okay, you have the bedrock. People are telling you limestone or schist or whatever. Okay, so that's the bedrock. What really matters is what we call the CHE in English. The clay you must compound, the CHA, so CHC in English. The clay you must compound, which is the interaction between what's happening above ground 
the work of the farmers, the tilling, the cover crop, the organic material, and the below, which is the bedrock. The bedrock and the work above it with all the organic material, at one point, thanks to especially worms, are going to combine. And this is when you start to get the clay. This is when you start to get the CHT. And the CHT is the most important because this is what's going to bring two of the most fundamental things that the vine needs, water and the mineral compound. So what really matters when you start to talk about bedrock, guys, is not the bedrock, is the alteration of the bedrock. How the bedrock has been withered, transformed, metabolized over time by a lot of different compounds, be it weather, be it like organic worms and all that, to able to decompose and to give these minerals that are belonging to the, to the primary rock, the nest, the schist, the limestone, to be accessible to the vine. If you put a vine on a pure light of limestone, the vine is going to die. You need the clay. You need something for the vine to survive. And then you need the vine to be accessing the minerals. The minerals are coming from the degradation of the mother rock. So what really matters, and we need to go, like, I think it's amazing because all of you know, guys, you all know about mother rock by now. I think the education has been amazing all over. So the next step is about how this mother rock is altered by different things and how this alteration gives this compound that are suddenly available to the vine. That's the real questions. That's the next questions. Because you can have limestone everywhere, but if the vine can't take anything out of it, it doesn't matter. So that's the next thing is what the work of the winemaker, the biodynamic farming, the sustainable farming, the way that you have an integration between the organic topsoil and the mother rock is going to really give something to the vine in terms of water access and mineral access to give a real sense of the place. And I think in New York, we are one of the most educated Educated, really thirsty guys. You are like the level of knowledge in this city is unbelievable. And now we need to go to the next step. And the next step is understanding how their work combined with the terroir is giving what we have into the wine. And that's the next step. Okay? Your wine. Allez, let's go. Sorry for that. I was a bit excited by my alteration of bedrock. <laughs> Yeah, we start with our wine, and it, I think it's a good example of uh, a wine of uh, origin um, and still uh, being a natural wine. Um, so we grow the, 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 the grapes on, on the Leiterberg, uh, which is really the final ending of the Austrian Alps. So as a center rock, we have schist. A couple of years ago, we had an ocean in our region. Um, so... You need to imagine as high you go, as more schists you have. And in the middle segment, where all the coral reefs have been and marshals and animals, they died and then they covered um, the schist. And the Leiterberg is, um, there are different uh, vineyards in, in my city. Um, but we, we were lucky enough uh, to take over a lot of old vines from uh, people stopped winemaking. And I think the average age in the, in the Leiterberg is like uh, 40 years uh, plus. 
And that's a real treasure for us because we want to keep these old wines uh, because it's just a time advantage. Because if I plant now a vineyard till the vineyard is 40 years old, I will not probably make wine anymore. Uh, so it's a project then for the next generation. And we were happy that the previous generation took care of us. And um, <clears throat> yeah, we try to keep it very simple. So um, we harvest the grapes, de-stem them. And what we really love is to work with open fermenters because we don't want to lose um, the connection to the grapes. I want to feel, I want to smell the mesh, and I want to have an idea of, uh, of the temperature. If it's in a closed system, you can't build up uh, this connection. And then um, after alcoholic fermentation is done, we just press it, keep it in used oak barrels for two years without any suffering, without any movement. Before bottling, we rack it two times, three times, and then it goes straight into the bottle. And it's the same thing like with the Weisburgunder before. We're just, we sent the wines on a journey, but the, the journey starts with bottling, which doesn't mean that they are ready to drink when they are bottled. But I think it gives you a good example now. So this uh, wine is uh, vintage 2019, was bottled in 21. Um, and yeah, it's still a baby. There is still something more to come. And that's, I mean, that's our entry level Blau Frankish wine, what we have. Uh, because we didn't bring the single vineyards with us, but um, you get an idea of uh, how Blau Frankish or how we understand Blau Frankish in our winery. The second wine is called Güterweg and it's a village wine from Kolfok. Um, three different vineyards, three different soils, um, and it uh, showcases that Blau Frankish uh, performs very good on schist, on limestone, and on clay. This is what uh, all the three vineyards have together. Um, they have in common also that they are, have an altitude of about 400 meters. And the wine um, is not only from a south-facing hill, but also from a north-facing hill. And that is what is uh, the aim to show that not only sun is producing the best wine or the best grapes, but we live in a time that we need shadow and that we need some cooler climate in our region. And that is the North Facing Hill, which used to be the cheapest land ever. And now it's turning and uh, some people already know that the North Facing Hills can, or North Facing Vineyards can be as expensive as the South Facing used to be. And this wine shows all that. It's called Neckenmarkt because the village where we live is called Neckenmarkt. And this is a village wine showing all the possibilities Blaffrankisch is finding in our village and in our soils. So, uh, again, it's elegance, but it's also freshness. And it is always this is these uh, kind of searching for more on the palate. And that is what Bluff Frankish is for us. Yeah, and I think, like, to, to conclude, but look at the lineup that we had. We are talking about low intervention wine. Uh, for a long time, you know, we are mocked by low intervention mix, kind of not terribly expressive. And actually, like, the, the precision of the wine, I think, today, I hope you are taking that from you, is, like, fantastic. In terms of terroir and in terms of the grapes, the techniques is just today a way for you guys to be able to express more than ever your place be it maceration be it carbonic maceration skin contact, whatever amphora, no amphora and I think the lineup 
for like all this wine, the precision, no bacterial deviances. I'm, I'm, I'm allowing to talk about that, but no bacterial deviances, no over like VA, no bread and all that. There was really a very, very incredibly strong lineup of really great farming and win and win relationship in a cellar with understanding the cycles of nature and you guys just working with it. So I hope you enjoyed uh, this seminar. We are just talking about the north facing and I wanted to say that for the UNS Singer, but it's always like the parcel blanc like we tried was also north facing, which is today a question about that. Um, and I think you can test it in a while, but this is why I'm really excited about Austria today because the overall dedication, precision, I'm tired of buying wine very expensive that are fucked up. I love low intervention. I believe in that. I believe in the natural cycle. I still want wine that are telling me about their place. And that's the, the magic of wine, that the culture, that where it comes from. I want to taste that. I don't want to take oxidation. I don't want to take bread or mouse. Or, it has to be in balance with that. Look, look at what we tasted today. I think the lineup is fantastic. Because, because there is a seriousness, because it's really about releasing the wine when they have to be released, because it's time in a cellar, it's two years before you put that on the market, because there is a kind of understanding of the range, there is some stuff for earlier consumption and some for later consumption, and they are not at the same price and all that. So thank you for that, because I'm totally for no-no, but I want something that is really changing, not my life, because I saw the light, but my guests. I want, I want my guests to be happy tasting this wine and feeling why we are all together in this defense of real farming and real wine. So bravo, guys, because that was really a great lineup. So bravo for that. You should go and taste their wines because there is more in the bag. You have like 45 minutes. I'm so sorry for that. Thank you for attending this little uh, seminar. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.